welcome to In Discussion. Guest today, Audrey Levy, is a playwright, screenwriter, author of Noel's Ark, an inspiring story that charts the story of hope and passion of characters bound together by love and devotion. My guest today is highly recognized for her novel Noel's Ark and has received praise from many commentators and academics, including nighttime show host Jay Leno. Her life's journey as playwright, screenwriter and author is represented in this novel where an inspirational story unfolds between human beings torn apart by pain and passing. Her work and devotion to people as a practicing psychologist and family therapist assures an understanding of the human position. Through her wide-ranging work, Audrey Levy joins me today from Marina del Rey in Southern California, where her passion for water and the sea is celebrated by a lifestyle that she calls home. Audrey, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. I know that your home is on the water in, yes. in beautiful Marina del Rey, and by the way, it's one of my most favorite locations in Southern California when I'm there. What uh, brought that around out of interest? The gentleman that I was living with that the book is based on uh, always wanted to be a sailor. He always wanted to sail around the world and live happily ever after, and so our dream was to always get a boat and live on it, and ultimately we did for the last two years of his life. We lived on a little sailboat, and I loved it so much that when he passed away, um, I just decided to stay on the water. And uh, I found myself this little houseboat just across the way, and I've been here ever since. So clearly you don't suffer from seasickness? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not yet, anyway. Knock on wood. I, as indicated in our notes, Audrey was deeply moved by this book. Um, obviously, uh, as a broadcaster, both in radio and television, I have books coming over my desk all day long. Um, I love this book. Uh, there were so many deep messages, uh, n not only in the story, but also in the way that you you uh, played it out and, and, and wrote this. Could you uh, start this off by telling me what the, the, the catalyst, what was the driving method at the beginning that made you write this book? Um, nightmares. I had nightmares for about 11 years um, and no matter what I tried uh, they wouldn't go away I tried um, therapy I tried medication I tried psychics I tried uh, all kinds of things and um, in the nightmares I would be talking in my sleep very loudly yelling and I lived on the water and so sound carries especially during the summer when you have the windows open and um, one day, uh, one of my neighbors came over in the morning and asked if I was all right. And I said, well, yeah, how come? And he said, well, like at 2 o'clock in the morning, you were yelling, call 911, help, help. So I had sort of, um, I couldn't keep it a secret anymore, if you will. And um, I, I spoke to several people about uh, what might be left that I could try. And uh, an old colleague of mine, a psychologist, suggested EMDR which is um, therapy started by Francine Shapiro. It's, it's eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And uh, I, when I went to this therapist, um, we, of course, began to talk about my history, and he suggested that I begin to write some of these nightmares in a story form as a way of, Purging. Now, 
Did you eventually realize the source of these nightmares, how they came about? Uh, about? Because obviously, as you've seen in my my notes on the program, I would like to go back to your early life and and explore that. Um, but did you did you come to a conclusion as to why those nightmares occurred? Oh yeah, it was. I, I knew that even before I started the EMDR. I, the um, it was very self evident. The the nightmares started. Uh, around 1995, after my mom passed away, and um, my uh, my dad had passed in '93, my mom had passed in '94, and um, after my mom passed, I found out that I was um, cut out of my dad's will, and um, that was when they started. The nightmare started, and and my lifestyle with Jimmy, the gentleman that the book centers around, um, was a very difficult one. We didn't have a lot of money. He was an active alcoholic. Um, I was an enabler, and uh, as alcoholism does, it progresses. And so once he died, uh, he died in 98, um, the nightmares just completely took off. While he was still alive, I was already yelling in my sleep because he would, you know, wake me up and... Um, and calm me down, but after he died and I had no one to awaken me, I just apparently got out of hand. So when you use the term enabler, yeah. is that another way of defining codependency? Yes, absolutely. And so w when he left your life, you essentially felt very insulated, very much on your own. Oh yeah, I, I was. I didn't have anybody except my dog. Can we, at that stage, uh, therefore, return back to your childhood? Um, can you tell me a bit about uh, where you lived and, and uh, your feelings about your mother and father and, and what way of life that was back then? Sure. Um, I, uh, I actually had a, a rather fortunate childhood in terms of my environment. I was an uh, upper-middle-class Jewish family in a factory town. I was born in Patterson, New Jersey which is known for its silk factories and uh, Hurricane Carter and Lou Costello being born there. So Lou Costello and I had the same fourth grade teacher, Miss Golden, and uh, we lived um, two blocks from the water, from the Passaic River, in a very nice house right on the corner, and that was about as far as you could get from downtown Patterson, where my dad's office was. But it was a small town, so... You know, it was only 15 minutes away from downtown, so my mom could drive my dad to work and stuff. And um, um, my early years in school, my kindergarten, first grade, and second grade, my parents wanted to send me to a yeshiva, a Hebrew school, because the public school that my brothers had gone to, where I always wanted to go, was uh, experiencing the influx of a lot of African-American children, and my parents were afraid for my safety in those days. Um, they didn't, you know, a lot of parents went through that then um, when integration was first beginning. Is this indicative of being the youngest? Were you the youngest of the, of the three children? So yes. did, did you, in a way, receive uh, preferential treatment from your uh, parents? Absolutely. Um, uh, I was the only girl, and my dad uh, started making money uh, after I was born. So... Uh, they moved into a bigger house when my mom was pregnant with me, um, and my dad 
had always wanted a little girl. So, and my mom had had a miscarriage before I was born of another boy. So, he was just very. I was really the apple of his eye. He was very focused on protecting me and giving me the best that could possibly be given. So you were very close, and did you, in fact, attend the Hebrew school? I did for uh, kindergarten, first grade, and second grade. How, 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 what sort of effect did that have on your life? Um, not good. I, could, I hated it. Um, it was a very... We, it was a very orthodox school, meaning it was the strictest Jewish traditions that could be followed. And my household, my dad was an atheist. My, um, we, we belong to a conservative temple. There's, there's orthodox, conservative, and reform. Uh, and we belong to a conservative temple, but we lived a reformed lifestyle. Uh, in other words, like on the high holy days when you're not supposed to drive, uh, we would park three blocks from the temple and then walk the rest of the way. So it looked like we walked. Is that not a paradox, that if your father was an atheist, that he sent you to this, this school that, that, that taught Hebrew? What was he thinking when he, when he did that, if he, if he was an atheist? Um, well, it didn't really have much to do with God. It just had to do with the safest place to put me where he thought I would get the best education. Um, my grand, his father had been extremely orthodox uh, Jewish man, very always concentrated on his Bible and had... He was what they call a Hasidic Jew. And so I think that my father's atheism was more in his own rebellion against that. Uh, and maybe he was more of an agnostic than an atheist, but he just, um, he just really didn't, he never figured that anything like a god was going to take care of us, and I had to be very clear on that and not rely on it. So... Um, it wasn't that he wanted me to get a religious upbringing. He just, of the schools that were available in that area, you know, he looked at the different private schools and what was available, and um, this was relatively close to our home. Uh, my older brother, or my middle brother, was able to go with me so that um, when I was in kindergarten, he was in seventh grade, and we were, so my, you know, he could look out for me, kind of, is what my dad thought. That, and um, But because our lifestyle was so different, um... I mean, I remember, I was thinking about this, the very first day of school, I'm five years old in kindergarten, and all the children are sitting at the long, this long table, and they served us meat with juice. And I didn't like juice, and so I raised my hand and very politely <coughs> said, may I please have a glass of milk? And in the Jewish religion, for you to have milk with meat, it's completely forbidden, and I had no idea that that was forbidden. So that was the first time, really, that you were turned off by the experience? Yeah. I mean, my very first day at school, all the kids turned around and went, ooh, and the teacher had this look of horror on her face, and she said, well, we don't drink milk with meat. And I said, well, I do all the time at home. And I was very confused. Now, can you tell me what home life was like? You, I think you've very well explained that this was the traditional community. It, it had industry, manufacturing, all the skills. Uh, traditional family values? Did you, did you grow up in a family that was very tight, that, uh, that always uh, sat around the table at the end of the day, always uh, communicated with each other? Yes. Uh, we ate dinner together every night. My dad came home like clockwork at 5.30 every night from the office. My mom cooked dinner. I helped set the table. And um, my brothers were there up until they went away to law school. And we always had, you know, it wasn't until uh, probably the 60s when we actually put a little TV in the kitchen because my dad used to like to watch reruns of Hogan's Heroes and <laughs> 
shows like that during dinner. But um, when all the years I was growing up, we always were very close. Now, what about your mother? What was the relationship with your mother um, and the relationship between your mother and your father? Were you all terribly close? I, I believe so. That's my recollection. I mean, I they were married for 47 years, and they had a world whirlwind courtship. They married two weeks after they met. Uh, my dad sent her a bunch of love letters. She was in St. Louis. He was in New Jersey. And um, they always were very affectionate with each other. Um, Don't you think it's amazing when you look at that period? You know, it was the same with my father. He Before he died, he was married for 49 years. Uh, demobbed from the war in 54, after the Suez crisis. Uh, he'd already been married in 1949 and had one job for the rest of his life. That That is not how the world is defined now. No. And is that not sad? I think so. Um, well, I think part of it is sad and part of it isn't. I think the part that's sad is that the security that you have in those circumstances is gone. But on the other hand, it, now we have an opportunity to have many different lifetimes within one lifetime because we have, we have much more mobility and we can try different things. And um, as long as we're not too scared of you know, not having that secure job that you go to every day and the paycheck at the end of the week. Is it not, though, uh, a world at the moment where it's almost as if kids especially are trained to throw as many things against the wall until something sticks? Yes, they are. Um, I'm going to sound like a Pollyanna here, but I... I just would always rather concentrate on the positive than the negative. So, yes, we could spend a lot of time talking about how sad it is and depressing and how everything's changed, or we could maybe, you know, take those challenges and, and turn them around and make them positive. Now, you then uh, went to Boston University. Um, I, well, ever since I was little, the two things I wanted to be was either a nurse or a writer. Um, and so... My father was very clear that I couldn't make a living as a writer. And, um, you know, I was expected to get married and have children, and my mom never had a job. So basically I was just going to be a housewife. And because I did well academically um, and times were changing, um, my dad asked me if I'd like to go to college because I had the grades to, to do that. And if I he actually encouraged me to become an attorney and join him and my brothers in the in the law firm. So um, there is no, in those days, there was no pre-law major. You could major in anything you wanted to major in. And I had, my backup was always wanting to be in the medical field. I wanted to help people. And uh, I didn't want to be a doctor because my dad, as a personal injury lawyer, was always suing doctors and hospitals and various places like that, and he would, you know, blame the doctors for a lot of stuff. So I thought, well, if I'm a nurse, then I won't get blamed, I won't get sued, I just do what the doctor tells me to do, and I can still help people. Isn't it terrible that we live in a society <laughs> where everybody's afraid of being sued? I know. <laughs> <laughs> when it was time for me to go to college, I enrolled in the School of Nursing at Boston University, and um, I, I wanted to come to UCLA, but uh, it was, you know, 3,000 miles away. You still had to pay for long-distance phone bills in those days. And uh, my dad said, you know, forget it. I want you to be able to come home on the weekend if you want. You know, I don't want to just see you a couple times a year. And I want to talk to you every Sunday, and I don't want expensive phone bills. And you might meet somebody out there and get married and stay out there. Just stay closer to home. 
What did you encounter at this stage at the university that was so different from the lifestyle that, that you had had uh, during, during childhood? The freedom. Um, my first day at Boston University, after my, par- my parents drove me up and they dropped me off at the dorm, and my, uh, the first thing I did was take off my bra and go buy a pack of cigarettes. Um, and I just, uh, I, w- I just had a freedom that I'd never had before, and I, I really appreciated that and probably overindulged in it, but that was the main difference, that I was my own, I was my own boss for a while. My bills were paid. My dad, as long as my grades were good, my dad paid my tuition, not through me. I mean, he would pay the school, and he gave me an allowance. And um, my first semester at college was um, was really fun. I had a boyfriend. I was in the school of nursing. I liked my roommate. Um, first semester was, was sort of out of a storybook. It was fun. How do you look back at the 60s now uh, in, in this time? Um, what do you think that the 60s meant for the society in the longer term? I think it was huge. I think the ramifications, certainly for myself, but just the world, and it seemed like everything changed then. Everything just completely changed. At least that was my perspective. What I find really interesting is that now, 40 years later, um, so much of what we tried to implement back then didn't happen. And a lot of the hippies are now straight, middle-class establishments. So, but in those days, in the 60s, when you were living in the 60s, for me, everything was entirely different. It was, it was night and day between what my father and brothers and mother wanted and versus what I wanted to do. Do you think that the, uh, the, the, the think tanks, the commentators who slam the 60s as being the the period of lust in society have a point? Do you think some of the things that they say are valid in the way that we have become degraded in society now uh, with with greed uh, and consumerism? Do you think that part of that came uh, as a result of the 60s? I I suppose it could be a a reaction to it because it's the opposite way. I mean, in the 60s, Greed wasn't an issue. People, you know, that's when they had free love, free drugs, free everything. Uh, we wanted to help all the poor people, and there wasn't any greed in, in my element. Um, I think that that's, but it still existed. I mean, my dad's generation was certainly, and my brothers as well, are, you know, were focused on capitalism and putting as much money in the bank as they could and living as well as they could. What about in a political sense? Were you politically active in those days? Did you, did you have a greater sense of politics by the time, time you departed university life? Actually, the, the, I was the most political in my senior year of high school. Because <laughs> um, I graduated high school in 1971, and in 68 is when Bobby Kennedy and Kent State happened. And my best friend at the time had a brother who went to Kent State and knew the kids that had been killed. Um, so I was the most politically aware while I was in high school. Once I got to college, I was much more isolated. And um, I pretty much stopped watching the news and wasn't involved politically at all. 
Now, you travelled through university and you indicated that you were not really thinking about writing at all then. But but was were there signs throughout that period that, that you were gaining an interest in writing? Oh, yeah. I always kept diaries, <clears throat> always kept journals. And my dad had um, praised me for my writing skills ever since I was a tiny thing, you know, writing little stories in spelling class. So it was always something that I was good at. And then by the time you completed university, you were looking at psychology, you were looking at uh, helping people in that area? Right. I had, um, I had changed from nursing. <clears throat> the, the 8 o'clock classes of physics and chemistry didn't, didn't work for me. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I had changed to the School of Education, and uh, I, was, I found myself drawn to the children that were emotionally disturbed I apparently, I had a calming influence on them. I related well to them, and I was very fascinated with the study of psychology. So I ended up getting my degree in special education with for emotionally disturbed children. And then I spent the first year after college working in the mental health field. My dad was very um, adamant at that point that I make some sort of a decision and either come back to New Jersey and look for a husband or go to law school or do something with my life other than uh, working in the mental health field. He didn't have a lot of affection or respect for the mental health field. Now, at that stage, were the cases that you came across very different to the cases that you're involved in nowadays? Actually, they're very similar. I, I'm, I kind of laugh at the irony of it. My very first job was working for a crisis intervention team. And the counselors would go to people's homes who were in crisis and defuse them and, and, you know, get them on to the next step, whatever that was. That's exactly what I do now, 40 years later, except that I do it from home over the phone. I'm, I take crisis calls from people and facilities all day long and help people that are suicidal or homicidal or psychotic or their families are in trouble or substance abusers and I walk them into the next step. Now what does that do for you? What does that do for your soul? I, 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 would I be correct in saying that at this stage you are much better positioned um, to, to handle these constant crises than you were when you were younger? Oh absolutely. In fact when I was younger <clears throat> I was not one of the licensed counselors that went out. My job was to was the office I was the home person that fielded the calls, whereas now I'm a licensed person who's lived through 40 years of her own crises, if you will, and um, I've had experience in private practice and being out in the field, and so I'm, you know, just my age, I'm able to offer more advice from a place of experience. What are the typical examples of, of that now? Is it because of family disintegration, uh, trauma at home, or or trauma uh, in the the public domain? What is it in the main part that that you see as being a, a problem with the people that you that you mentor and heal and help? A lot of it, I find, is based on a lot of people who come to me are suicidal because. Life just hasn't worked out the way they wanted it to. They're very depressed. They had abusive childhoods. They don't see any hope for the future. And 
you know, it's two sides of the same coin, suicidal and homicidal. They either want to kill themselves or they want to kill somebody else. And um, a lot of them are substance abusers as a way of, that's their coping method of dealing with the, the stress and the unhappiness. I think that life is very complicated now. Um, I think life has always been difficult since the beginning of time, no matter what generation, no matter what century, it's always been difficult. But I think with the advent of technology, it's become much more complicated so that you, there are a lot of people getting left behind who are not technology savvy. Is it, is it not um, strange that technology was supposed to help society and yet it's complicated it uh, immeasurably, made it more fast-paced and uh, more complicated? That, that seems to be a, a real irony that we're all facing. It is ironic, and, you know, it's a double-edged sword. I mean, I think technology has helped us tremendously. I, I wouldn't turn the clock backwards for anything, but much like anything that's good, you know, everything has a double side to it. You have to... It's very tough, very fine tightrope to be able to. What about with your, your daily life, Audrey, w w your work? Do you ever get to a time in the day when you put your hands up in the air and say humanity is really very chaotic? Um, or are you um, ever uh, uh, joyous and um, uh, always uh, taking the position that that nothing gets in the way of helping people and recognizing that there are problems with humanity, so you have to just deal with it and move forward, move move onwards. Um, oh, I would be lying if I said I was always joyous <laughs> and always optimistic. Um, certainly, I get depressed and and get overwhelmed by the world situation or specific stories that I hear during the day. Um, I think that at the end of the day, I just, I'm very grateful that I have the life that I have. My mom always used to say there, but for the grace of God, go I. And I find myself saying that a lot. Um, you clearly have spent your whole life supporting other people. You also uh, became involved in, in writing screenplays becoming a playwright um now how did that occur how, how did you finally find this this passion that possibly could offset uh this this work that you had committed your life to how did that come about well um i i wasn't making very much money writing for magazines and newspapers and my uh i had a client i was tutoring children and typing for college students, and now you're you're sounding very old now. <laughs> when you talk about <laughs> typing, computers. yeah, I've still got a typewriter at home, and I still use it just to be <laughs> just to be totally, you know, just so I, I want to keep that uh, sense of um, total madness there. That people don't don't um, don't think that I'm becoming completely aligned with technology. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, in uh, one of the fathers of one of the children that I tutored was a psychologist, and he was doing a very unusual kind of therapy where he was actually sending people to live with patients as an alternative to hospitalization, and he asked me if I would like to do it for a month 
and then I could write a personal experience article about it when I was done. And so I said yes, and the month turned into four years, and I ended up getting my psychology degree and my marriage and family therapist license and actually went into private practice uh, with Jimmy, the gentleman that I lived with, who was a neuropsychologist. And we opened our practice in 1981, and my writing just sort of got put on the back burner. And in 1983, <coughs> Jimmy had three surgeries in one year, um, and he essentially was told that he had to stop doing anything stressful, and our financial situation just went completely upside down, and I had to figure out a way to be able to survive. And Now, you, you were married, were you? Uh, no, we never married. We lived together for 20 years. By the time I started having my biological clock start ticking, uh, by that time it was clear to me that he was an alcoholic, and if we had a wedding, he would get drunk at the party. <laughs> my father would be horrified, and I would be embarrassed. And so I just thought in the back of my mind, well, one day when we get this alcoholism under control and we have enough money in the bank and we're more stable, we'll get married then. Now, was he, never happened. was he the love of your life? Well, I'd like to think my life's not over yet, but certainly he dominated. He was, I loved him very dearly for 20 years and was devastated when he died. So up to this point... Um, I, th I, I think I ask that question simply because the book is so unbelievably powerful that it would suggest to me that he was. Yeah. I think so. So you you uh, you started going through some some pain there. So you you had some challenges. And you're you're now writing screenplays. Um, you're becoming a playwright, and you also uh, worked in in comedy. Um, what was the the reason to go into comedy? Did, is that something that that really perked your interest? Was it an enjoyable uh, part of your life? Um, very much so. Um my dad, uh, when, I w when I started writing screenplays, my dad said to me, uh, you, need to, you need to write comedies because comedies make the most money. And, um, and, and there's always a demand for comedy and not everybody can write comedy. And so I began to study comedy. And um, he was right. It was very difficult to write comedy and I actually wasn't very good at it. Um, I was so serious-minded that it was hard for me uh, to lighten up and, and, and write funny. But were you successful? Mm, no, not writing, no. <laughs> not writing. And, uh, and not writing comedy. Um, in what happened is after I wrote Noel's Ark, um, and I was preparing to start speaking about the book and going on speaking engagements, I wanted to uh, polish my skills a little bit, and I went to the Los Angeles chapter of the National Speakers Association for a brunch, and the very first speaker was a woman named Judy Carter, who used to be a comedian and now teaches comedy and is a speaker, a corporate speaker as well. And so I thought, huh, I could do that. So I took her class, and as part of the graduation from her class, what you do is you go and you get your five minutes on the improv stage at the Hollywood Improv, where Robin Williams and Jay and Billy Crystal and all those people started. And I loved it. Uh, I just had a really good time doing it. And so I figured, and I, I, 
it hasn't happened yet, but I'm working on my doctorate, which I'll have hopefully in June, and I figure I'll be a funny doctor, and <laughs> <laughs> and I can, uh, my dog and I go to uh, Cedars-Sinai Hospital twice a month, and she has a great smile on her face, and so I figure we'll just go and make people laugh, and I'll be a funny doctor with a funny dog. <laughs> you mentioned Jay Leno, um, and I think it was wonderful uh, his quotation on your book, I've known the author, Audrey Levy, since college, and this is truly her story. Uh, am- amazing man. Um, how, how long have you known Jay? Is, is, is he a, a man who inspires you with his work? Oh, yeah. Um, I've known Jay since the <clears throat> 70s because I... We, he, Commonwealth Avenue is the main street in Boston where all the kids live, and... Um, He was in college, and I was in college, and we both lived in the same apartment building, and we shared a balcony. But nevertheless, (laughs) you've known him, you've known him a long time. Very long time. And, um, and he and and others have praised this book, uh, and perhaps that does act as a good segue into Noel's Ark. Um, Audrey, what what began this story? Um, I wanted to get rid of my nightmares, and I thought that if I wrote it all down, that would help. And did, and was that accomplished well and yes, quickly? extremely. It was very, very beneficial. What I did was um, I brought my pages in to my therapist, and I had him read them in front of me so I could see his reaction, and then we would talk about them. So, that, so this, this book really is talking about yourself. It really is talking about your life in, yeah. many, in many ways. Yeah, it is. What... Were you finding, and we've talked about this before the program, uh, we, we, we state that disturbance which I've asked you, um, the, Jimmy, the main character, uh, the effort that you go through with this book, what is the underlying story? What, was, what is the underlying message of this book that you are trying to get over to the reader? Well, I think that as a person in recovery myself, in the 12-step recovery arena, Um, and Jimmy having died from alcoholism, that I like to think of myself moving from a victim position to somebody who's living in the problem, from somebody who's living in the problem to maybe moving to somebody who's living in the answer, living in the solution. Which is a profound step, and and if achieved, it's a remarkable victory for a human being. Moving on to yourself can I ask you about your core beliefs Um, we're obviously talking about two worlds in this book Um, we're talking about this world and we're talking about God's world Um, where do do you sit in that how how do you see that well um, I pretty much focus on acting as if there is a God and as if there are angels and that it's all going to be okay in the end. And I just work from the assumption that that I, I act as if that is occurring, but I, I don't rely on it for my sanity. Um, I'm, I, I'm not convinced, if you will. <laughs> there's, you know, there's no empirical proof, if you will, that there is a God. And so I, I think it would be foolish for me to um, rely on it completely as a way of 
feeling secure and optimistic and um but that that is of all the programs that is an amazing statement that you've just made because the book itself would would indicate exactly the opposite um but you you that frankness um that frankness is is absolutely inspiring uh, jimmy splendor the main character he takes this transition um obviously he 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 doesn't want to take the transition and he pushes back on it and hopes that it's not really occurring uh what in your writing in your story is is defining how he's feeling as a person going from this world to that world very frustrated um in in his lifetime he was an atheist he was a scientist and um the idea that he would wake up in heaven is unbelievable to him and he doesn't want to be there <laughs> he and he uh thinks it's all a bad dream and yet you uh, complement that almost by him facing his first fear with with his father yeah that's uh, the reason and and the reason for that um i think that when he was alive his father was his biggest nemesis his his uh his father left the family when jimmy was only 2 his father was an alcoholic who died at the age of 52 um he was in prison for forging checks he um was just someone that jimmy was ashamed of didn't like um when he when he came of age and was a teenager they got into some physical altercations when allegedly his dad was uh, being abusive to his mom and you know on on a visit home and he and, and jimmy intervened so it i think that uh in his lifetime his most hated person if you will would have been his dad and so it seemed like that was the best person to greet him and then we have this character olio yeah coming in <laughs> now um there's some very deep meaning behind this character that i suspect that some will not read uh, what is olio what is the essence of of olio as i'm i'm guessing i sort of see her as um the embodiment of love unconditional love um it, to simplify it i mean she's just um all knowledge all love and uh all forgiving and acting as a segue acting as a uh, a line of communication between Noel and Jimmy yeah her her when i first thought of her I didn't really think of her as being an angel when I first thought of her. I thought of her as more being a traveler. She was just um somebody who traveled from place to place helping people. And that was her that was her job. And um and then once I realized I could make her an angel, uh that just opened up lots of possibilities because then her powers could she could do anything she wanted to do. Uh, th- this really is saying as much as uh, about Noel uh, as it is Jimmy what is it defining uh, in Noel the, the the way that 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 she is ruling her life that she is trying to get over this on earth in 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 this world as a human being well i think in the beginning she's um she's in, she's in a rut she's stuck um i mean much like myself she the character has nightmares and she's doesn't have any men in her life and 
she's unhappy in her work and um, she drank and um, there was you know smoked marijuana and various other things and she was just very unhappy and suicidal um, and didn't have much to live for and didn't believe in God and didn't believe in angels so there was no light at the end of the tunnel for the sake of the listeners who have not read the book yet, could you summarize the the effort in this book and, and the, the ending, the resolution? Yeah, I think so. Basically, it's about, um, well, Jimmy Splendor is an atheist, um, I can, and he, he dies from alcoholism. He's only 56 years old, and he wakes up in heaven, and he's greeted by his dad, which we just talked about, and... Once he uh, he accepts that he is in heaven, and he's met this angel, Olio, who can um, who convinces him by showing him various things. He wants to go back and see what's happened to the woman that he left behind, Noel, and um, Olio takes him to see her. And it's been seven years since he's passed away, and so what he sees is the woman that I just described to you. Uh, depressed, suicidal, nightmares, um, very unhappy. When you were writing this book, I had actually asked you the question um, in, a, in our overview together uh, of the outside influences that you had in getting, in getting feedback. And you mentioned that you would, you would take these, uh, these lines that you wrote um, into your, your, your colleague's office and you would you would mull them over. You would you would talk them through. Was there any influence that came from that, or were, did you remain uh, very steadfast in in what you were doing? Um, I I was very focused. The reaction that I got uh, from the pages being read was extremely positive. Um, uh, the it was it was with the EMDR therapist that I began these pages, and he uh, cried. He laughed. Um, complimented my writing, whipped through the pages, couldn't wait to get to the next section. And um, it was an extremely positive, encouraging experience. And I just thought, well, you know, maybe when I'm done, this will be a book or something. And I just kept going. And so, so there was no particular structure in the way that you wrote it. I mean, did you, did you write it sequentially or, or were you shooting from one area to the other? Until until the end, where you started compiling it and putting it into order. Uh, no, I, I I wrote it from beginning to end, um, with the idea of telling my story in a way where I could rewrite my own script. Uh, it was a psychological exercise. Um, you know, they talk about in psychology how you don't have to be a victim of your childhood or your genetics. Uh, you can write your own script. And what I wanted to do was rewrite my story with a happy ending rather than suicide. You mentioned that um, in the book at, uh, towards the end, that wonderful statement from Richard Matheson. We are part of a plan, never doubt that, a plan to bring each one of us to the highest level of which we are capable. A way will be dark at times, but it leads assuredly to light. It, uh, has writing this book now, looking back on it, uh, and and listening to that statement, has that uh, expanded your thinking, expanded the way that you can work with people now uh, when they're in such uh, chaotic circumstances? Definitely. 
definitely. Um, and I and I think even when I'm being frank with them about the fact that uh, I'm not sure that that statement is true. In other words, maybe we're not part of a plan. Maybe there isn't a God. I, I think in the book I make reference to the fact that it was Richard Matheson that said that, not myself or the character of Noel. But that that statement in and of itself, if it is true, uh, as long as we act as if it's true, in the behavior of acting that way, everything opens up to us. You then uh, continue, I don't want to give the book away, but um, uh, a statement, don't worry about putting it, uh, putting it in stone, don't worry about people, places, and things not lasting. Just, right. re- just remember, as Confucius said, uh, it, just remember that wherever you go, go with all your heart. The wonderful, splendid words and, mm-hmm. and absolutely incredibly positive for people and, and people need to have these positive, positive messages. Uh, when people are so down, uh, these people that you work with, that, that you mentor on the phone, how difficult is it to bring them up, to lift them up? It, 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 is, it must be an enormous challenge because once you come off the phone, uh, you're, you're disconnected again so that they fall back into their world. Do you have a methodology there, Audrey, that where you can keep them on and up? Um, for one thing, I don't hang up with them until we have a time when we're going to speak again and, I'm, and I know what action they're going to be taking when we hang up the phone. I, I, I don't leave someone floating in the wind. I, 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 I find out what action they're going to be doing when we hang up the phone. And, and then I set up a time when we can touch base with each other to find out how that went. And I make it not too far away so that they, have, they know that there's somebody out there. There's an anchor out, anchor out there that, that they've connected with and that's going to be there and that they're going to talk to in a little bit. Do you, um, do you live this? Do you, you literally, you must be doing this all day long. Mm-hmm. You, you must live it. You must be almost taking a lot of the pain on yourself? Um, I think so. I think that's the nature of being a therapist. In fact, um, after Jimmy died, uh, I had to close our practice because I I call it my... my, um, I have my desk job now where I'm home behind a telephone. Uh, Before, when I would be sitting in the office and I'd be on the front line, uh, after Jimmy passed away... I couldn't absorb any more pain. I just had so much of my own that when people would come in with their depression and their pain, and I had to visually see it and and give to them, and and I just I I, could, I was like a sponge that was too full. I couldn't do it anymore, and uh, I had to stop. And uh, I took a couple of years off and just kind of went underground and and didn't do much of anything except be depressed. <laughs> And then when I resurfaced, I took this desk job where I'm doing all of the same things, but I'm doing it over the phone. And you'd be surprised how much more energy it takes to do it in person because you've got the whole visual uh, field to add to the stress. In other words, let's say you're dealing with an obese person or a person who's been burned or a person who's dying from cancer. They all look ill and their physicality encompasses it. 
Yeah, but, it, but, but isn't that protecting yourself in a way, though, rather, oh, yeah. ra- rather than supporting them? Well, yeah. <clears throat> I, had to, I had to make that boundary. I, I couldn't... I was ineffective in person. Uh, I, I became ineffective doing it in person. I began to fall asleep during my sessions. Uh, I would be just way more depressed at the end of the day instead of feeling like I had done anything positive. I was letting the, their gloom in on top of my own gloom and I, I was ineffective. And how did that change? How did that paradigm change to, to where you are now? Um, I think that because I do it over the phone, for some reason, well not for some reason, I think that because I do it over the phone and I don't have that extra visual field as extra stress, uh, I'm able to carry the load. And so I'm I like to think I'm very good at it. I know that I sure love doing it. I feel very useful. Uh, I get complimented all the time. I get a lot of positive feedback. And uh, I love it. What, uh, what is it that you see in society, Audrey, that, that we are lacking? I had mentioned in my notes to you uh, the concept of heroes, uh, of, of people having courage, of, of using wisdom, you know, using skills to, to change others, to benefit others. Do you think that's what we need in, in society now for people to step up? I do, and I, I, I think that a positive attitude rather than a negative attitude, is critical. Um, you know, remember from the 60s, the Beatles, John Lennon, all you need is love. And I, I really do think that love is the answer. I think that when we, I think that when we, uh, we look at our environment and we see it through the rose-colored glasses of looking for the positive, looking for the similarities with people rather than the differences, looking to find out what we can love about another human being rather than what we hate about them. Uh, The conflict diminishes immensely. And... uh, Do you think that people are capable of that? Well, yeah. I know I am. i got to figure you are. So there's two of us. Because I think that uh, we we are living in a world at the moment that is certainly defined by greed. Um, uh, and possession and uh, codependency in all of these things. Um, it's, it's a question of knowing what is that huge um, catalyst that comes in and changes that on a, on a, a, a wider scale. Is it a, another Gandhi or is it a government or is it people simply at local level becoming more communicative, having more neighborhood, being more neighborly, coming together in groups, um, very much like it was in the pre-war years? Do you have any ideas on that? Yeah, I, I think it's definitely the latter. I think that the world has become too large and too complicated for one person to come along and fix it. Uh, or even a team of people to come along and fix it. I think that it has to start at the very basic level with each individual and the butterfly effect. So what is it that you're going to be aspiring to in the future? You've written this amazing book. Uh, you, you're clearly uh, very interested in comedy and screenplays and, and, and working as a playwright. What is it these days that you're doing to, to complement that and, and to keep a level a balance, as it were, between this fine work that you're, you're doing and supporting people and finding something else that, that can continue your tradition as a writer? 
Um, well, I think I probably would be pretty much doing more of the same. Um, I enjoy writing very much, and uh, I think with technology, the fact that I can have a website, people can come and find me at AudreyLevy.com or NoelsArc.com. No, you, you had to drop that in there. <laughs> I, made a, I made a mental note to myself to do that, <laughs> and it's two minutes of before we're done, and I thought, uh, I better do it now. This is a good segue. Marina, um, Marina Del Rey, though, uh, it, it, what a beautiful place that is, Audrey. I, yeah. I, I do love it. You, you're obviously uh, loving being on the water, and I, I noted that you, you love uh, dogs and puppies. Yeah. Um, that, is, that must be a place of, of serenity for you. To, to get, there must be something psychological uh, about stepping off of the land and, and, and stepping onto the sea. What does that become for you now? that way of life um you know it just it fills me up my spirit just rises 200 percent as soon as i step onto the or step off of the land i guess is the way to say it um i just i love it there's an the the openness i think when i said earlier that the difference between my home environment and boston university was the freedom that i felt that first day and when you're out on the ocean it's so big I mean, it's it's the closest we can get to freedom. When you're out there, there isn't any traffic, and, and there aren't any phones unless you want them to be, and and it's huge. It's 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 so large that I just feel completely free. And uh, do you think that you'll always uh, be living on the sea as you are? Oh my gosh. Um, well, I'd like to say I hope so. I don't have a crystal ball. I mean, I don't mind living on land. I don't mind spending time on land, but I, I certainly hope that I can always keep my foot in the water. <laughs> what about uh, this this work, though, that you have spent so many years uh, doing now? Um, will you always continue this work helping people, or do you think that there will come a time when you say to yourself, well... I think I've done my fair share. I think what I'll do now is is default to to writing and and becoming more involved in comedy. Uh, do you think that will occur? I would like it to. I think um, because I am a psychologist, I think that I'll always keep my finger in the therapy pie. Um, I find it very useful to myself while I'm being useful to other people it's kind of like going to the gym even when you get down to your goal weight you want to still go to the gym and keep it up and when you when I do therapy with people it's an emotional workout it's reminding me what I need to do for me on a daily basis and so I I hope that I will always keep my finger in the therapy pie um, having said all of that though do you think that if you did uh, dissolve that, that it may change your writing, it may change the comedic uh, elements, uh, it, it, it may uh, give you a, a different perspective? I think it might. Um, I think that one of the things that I've been complimented on in my writing is the compassion and the, the, the uh, way that I see the human condition. And I think that if I got too far away from viewing that human condition on a daily basis that I might forget. So it's a fine line. Yeah, I think it's really important to keep your priorities and I, I wouldn't want to I wouldn't want to lose my priorities. In um, uh, the last couple of minutes, Audrey, 
I would like to just go back to Noel's arc and and just like you to to make a final statement to our listeners as to why they need to read this book and what your message ultimately is for them that, that, that comes from your heart. I think that if what they can take away from it is a sense of optimism and a sense that there's more to life than what we can see in here. Uh, there's more than just the five senses. I don't know what it is. I can't define it. I won't rely on it. I just know that it exists. Will there be another book? Oh, yeah. I'm already working on it. And um, and, and can we have any sort of um, perspective on that, what that will be, and if it's connected with uh, Noel's Ark? Um, or is it taboo? No, no. Uh, it's okay. <laughs> uh, um, it's called the, the World According to Audrey, um, or possibly a world according to Dr. Audrey, I quite, haven't quite decided. Um, and it's from A to Z, so there'll be 26 chapters, each chapter uh, a letter of the alphabet, and it, it's the world according to me, how I see it and what I think of it, and, um, and my story peppered into it. And that's what I'm working on, so we'll see what happens. Audrey Levy, it's been an <laughs> absolute pleasure uh, talking to you today. Thank you um, so much. What a wonderful book this is. It's been a privilege to, to read this book and to talk to you. And um, and I wish you so much luck in the future with, with your extremely important work benefiting uh, these people and also your, your writing career. Thank you, David. I, I very much appreciate the time and uh, I enjoyed myself as well. And to our listeners, I hope that you too have enjoyed this program as much as I have. You can get information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in Discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Thank you.